Today is kind of a one-off of a series sermon. Uh, we're kicking up a new series that I'm excited about next week, but today, is, almost all of my messages are written this way, but today more than others, uh, I'm going to talk to myself and let you listen, all right? Uh, this is not necessarily directed at you, but you know, if the shoe fits, go ahead and lace that baby up. Um, <laughs> But this is, this is for me. Um, this is scriptural. This is beneficial. But the person that this is really aimed at is me because I was at a conference last week with a lot of other church leaders, pastors, church planters, and spent a lot of time talking with people at all these different ends of the spectrum and in the middle of church health and church growth. And it just kind of put some things that I felt like needed to be said to our church so that we stayed on the same page of where we're going and what we're going to be and how we're going to do it and what we're going to be passionate about. And it really all kind of conglomerated in a passage that you should be familiar with if you've been around Gulfside for a while from James chapter 1. And so it all kind of put those things, and I want to make sure that where we are, we stay where we're supposed to be going. And so with that precursor said, I want you to know that as we go into this message. Uh, this is one of the, those messages that I think you, you have to revisit every now and then for a couple different reasons, not just vision, but for about the way that we live our life. Because as we live our life, things go by quickly. And if you're the same age as me or older, I'm sure you've had a moment where you looked at a picture or you looked at a mirror and you said, who is that old person standing there? Like, like just a minute ago, I was 20 um, thankfully, at least with pictures, they have ways to fix that now. I don't know if you've seen filters and what they do, or if you have a friend who every picture they post has a filter on it, and you're like, dude, you're not that young. Like, like that, that doesn't look right. I mean, if you don't know what filters can do, this is kind of a funny example that some people have put out there, kind of telling on themselves. Can you go ahead and show that first picture? That's the same person. <laughs> I don't know if you realize that, but that's the same person, and that's the difference of a filter in the hair down versus not. This next one as well, same person. The filter can do a lot. The filter and the pose as well. I mean, she gave herself the triple chin there with the neck placement, I understand. But it's so funny, like, how just, just looking at it a little differently, a little bit different lighting, one of these filters that lay some other things on, you can go ahead and get rid of that, because that will just distract people. People will keep staring at that the whole time. Um, <laughs> we, we can put filters on ourselves to make ourselves look better. Whether we realize it or not, we see a lot of things through filters, through our experience. We also look at our own actions through a filter. You know, if they just understood what my day was like, if what was going on in my life, then they would totally understand, this police officer would totally understand why I was speeding through a school zone while my seatbelt wasn't buckled in someone else's car that doesn't have insurance. They would totally let me go if they just understood my situation. No, <laughs> but we can always kind of justify our own actions and look at them and say, well, you know, if people understood, they would know that my heart was right, that this was good, that, that it's not about what I did or what I said. I didn't really mean it that way. They just need to understand how I see it. And, and we place a filter over it, and, and we, we change the way that we think it should be seen. And, and in fact, so much in our words and so much in, in our life, we, we understand and we give ourselves a pass on things that we should be doing differently, that we should be doing better, that we should just be doing because we're not doing any of it. But we kind of look at it and say, well, I've been busy. Well, it's been hard. Well, well you know, family stuff. And, 
And, and today, especially in the realm of our spiritual life, I don't want to be a people, I don't want to be a person, I don't want us to be a church that makes excuses and tries to say, well, if other people just understood what I was feeling, I want us to be a group of people who are doing what we're called to do in this city. In James chapter 1, starting at verse 22, it gives this very clear instruction to us. And we can put this up on the screen as I read it. And it says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. As we look through this passage and the verses to follow it, there's a couple things in here that I think happen in our life. There's three themes that I'm going to kind of pull from here that happens in our life, and it happens in churches across America. And I'm labeling, labeling them as three crimes because in the fact, I consider them to be crimes in the kingdom of God. If a church falls into this, and it's connected to these passages, and the first one is identity theft. This concept of if anyone hears the word, but, but they don't do it, it's like someone who looks into the mirror, and as they look, and then they turn away, they completely forget what they saw, who they are, who they're supposed to be. This concept of there's someone that they're supposed to be, and they don't even know who it is anymore once they turn around. This is something that churches are struggling with, and, and our cities are struggling with it as well, because the fact is our cities need churches to be who scripture says we should be. We, we need to take action that lines up with what's written in scripture because when we don't, our city looks at us and says, well, that doesn't work for them. Why would it work for me? It's, some of the things are so obvious and some of them are more subtle, but you know, uh, I, I saw it play out like this when I was a, a youth pastor. I was a youth pastor for 12 years. And while I was a youth pastor, I'll tell you, my favorite kids were the middle school students. It, a lot of people can't stand the middle school students, but I love them because they're, they're terrible liars, and, and they say exactly what they're thinking. It's like there's no filter, no control, like the words just come flowing out. Like it just happens, and it's so much fun to be around. I mean, they, they don't, they're not really self-aware yet. One time I was in a van with them, and I was like, oh man, what does that smell? One of the kids was like, oh, I haven't showered for like a week. I'm like, well, first of all, you may not want to say that everywhere. Second of all, showering is not optional. <laughs> Do it daily. Uh, but, but that's just sort of the mindset. And so I, knowing this, I took them to a conference, and as we're at this conference, there was someone who was up on the stage giving just this impassioned, tearful plea. He was a worker in Africa, and there was people starving in the village that he, he lived in, and he wanted help, and he wanted support, and he was making this great plea. And my middle schoolers that were with me, I was uncomfortable through the whole message because I knew exactly what they were going to ask. As soon as it was over, and they had the opportunity to speak to me, they were going to ask, and, and this is what he, they said, why is he so fat if they're starving? Because literally, and this is just an unfortunate truth, literally, he was incredibly overweight. He, they, they said he was wearing a muumuu. It wasn't a muumuu. It was an African garb. But the fact is, like, his stomach was so big that there was just this glaring thing. And one of them, one of the middle schoolers trying to be helpful said, why don't they just take some of the food from his table and bring it to some other people's table? And, and then not as many people will be starving as if, like, that thought hadn't run through. That that's how you feed people. Thank you for helping. And I said, you know what? It might be a thyroid issue. It might be a medical issue. Like, we don't know. 
But we know that when we see these glaring inconsistencies where someone says, you know, I'm so passionate about grace, but they're so mean to everyone, that it raises an objection, and I can't tell you what's going on in the life of that one person who is doing a great thing of working in another country, but you can pro- I could tell you about my life, and I knew you could probably tell me about yours of where the inconsistency is. Where we've heard, and this is the danger that the passage is saying, don't merely be listeners to the word and so deceive yourself. Because there's this deception that occurs within our head where we say, you know what, well, I just don't have to get to that yet, but God's been talking to us about it. If we've heard the word and we've heard the instruction and we know the step that we need to take, we can deceive ourselves into thinking that we're doing some good spiritual activity by listening, though we're never applying the word. And the book of James makes it just dead clear that if you're hearing the instruction but it's never getting into the practice of your life, you're deceiving yourselves into thinking that you're doing something beneficial. You're you're deceiving yourselves into thinking that, that you have some good spiritual movement happening in your life. But there has to be this intimate connection, this direct connection between when I hear something, I have the willingness of heart to apply it to my life. Because all the things that we see about Scripture, about who we're supposed to be, it's tied into this scriptural back and forth of I hear from God, and so I follow what he says. And then as I do that, I experience more of his goodness. I experience more of his blessing. I experience more of his hand at work in my life. And the fact is, if you're opening up Scripture, I can promise you, it's going to begin to reveal things to you that are going to say, okay, this is the step of action I need you to take. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it describes the work that Scripture does in our life when it says, For the word of God is alive and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. What does that mean? It means as you read Scripture, as you put yourself in a position to understand what God wants you to do, the word of God is going to get up in your business. It's going to mess with your life a little bit. It's going to mess with your relationships. It's going to mess with your time. It's going to mess with your words. It's going to mess with your people. But not just for the sake of messing with it, not just for the sake of change or action or doing something, but it's going to lead you towards something better. That God, when he works in our life, that he's leading us towards something better. And I want you to hear me clearly on this. This is not about having everything together at all times. This is not about being perfect. This is not about putting something on your shoulders that's too heavy for you to carry. This is about the realization that as we follow Christ, he calls us to take steps of obedience. And I believe that when we're walking, when we genuinely have made the decision, God, I want to see you work in my life, that he will give you a step, a goal, something to pursue, a purpose that requires some action steps. And they're not overwhelming, but sometimes it can be scary to step into. But this is what a spiritual life is supposed to be like. It's not just hearing, it's not just coming, it's not just listening to Paul on Sunday mornings, but it's getting engaged in the word of God. And God, he just looks for, as you're you're listening and as you're receiving, he looks for that mustard seed of faith, that small beginning that he can get his hands into where you're willing to begin to take some action, take some risk. Because when we 
When we look into the word of God, we begin to not just see the things that we've messed up, we begin to see what's written about who we're supposed to be, about what our faith is supposed to be like, about what our love is supposed to be like, about what our holiness is supposed to be like. And it begins to, to paint this portrait of someone who, who is a changing person and, and someone who probably looks different than what we look like in the rearview mirror. As we study the word of God, it begins to show, you know, you, you're not the condemnation, you're not your past mistakes, but you have this bright new start. You are a new creation. You have a future. You have a calling. You have a purpose. You have a hope that will never waver. Scripture begins to show us a truer version of who we are supposed to be. In our world, it desperately needs to see that. And I'll tell you, this is, this is a truth that plays out in every single city. Your choices, your generosity, your service, your love, your words are the words of Gulfside Church. And it's not that Gulfside Church is taking over your words, but it's the reality that in our city, you are the representation of this church, and the church is the representation of Jesus Christ. And so as generous as our city sees us is as generous as we are. How invitational our city sees us is how invitational you are. This isn't something that falls on someone else's shoulders. This is something that I do. This is something that you do. And if we come in here and we just listen and like, oh, that was a really fun word. That was encouraging. That was good. I'm glad I was here for that. But it never gets into our life. What James 1 says is that we're deceiving ourselves. I don't want you to be deceived. I want you to know the reality of the situation, the reality of your calling. I don't want you to feel overwhelmed either, but I want you to know that you have an identity that you're supposed to be living out in the city, and it requires action. It requires action. It requires steps. It requires change. It requires you talking to the person that you live with and saying, I'm going to take some steps forward in my faith. I'm going to live a little bit differently. I'm going to do some things differently. And if you notice, I don't want you to be surprised, but I'm, I'm trying to live this life. Action. Don't be deceived, but take those steps. The verse continues on into 26, and it says, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues, they deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Now, what does it mean to not keep a tight rein on your tongue? Um, the, The phrase that always comes to mind is the phrase my mom used. She would describe people as having verbal diarrhea, I like to call it verbal dysentery now because it's not just like a 24-hour affliction. It seems to last longer than that. You know, not not having the ability to rein in your tongue in this passage, it it identifies one thing, that fixing our words is not just a one-and-done issue. It's not like, oh, I dealt with that once and now I have it fixed. But it's actually keeping rein, keeping control. And it identifies that this is something that's ongoing. But it ties it to something that's much Stronger and much deeper is first it says they deceive themselves again. And then it goes into, and their religion is, is worthless. That it actually begins to say, okay, <clears throat> the worth, the strength, the effectiveness of what they believe, it, it's not happening. There's no effectiveness there. It, it's not creating the change that is necessary. And, and just with even our own words, it's one of those things that we need to stop and analyze. Okay, why am I saying the things that I'm saying? Do my words have purpose? Are they beneficial? Are they, as Ephesians 4.29 says, are they building others up according to their needs? Or am I saying what I'm saying just because it makes me feel better to say it? You know, 
most of the time when our words come out and, and they're to you know, push someone down and lift ourselves up, you know, our words are often injuring someone else. But the thing that we don't recognize and the, the thing that is true, and I know that this is a heavy statement, but God cares more about the words that you say than the person hearing them does. You know, sometimes our words injure someone else, but God's heart is more closely connected because that, that person that we're speaking to, God sees them with the same love that he sees you. Beyond that, that person that you're speaking to, there's probably a grandmother or a friend, you know, if they're far off from God, there's someone who's desperately praying that that God will put someone next to them that would speak about hope and love and faith that is found in Jesus Christ. They're praying, God, would you bring someone and put them right next to them in their life? And so you get put next to this person who, who is difficult, rightfully difficult. And so you want to help them find their place because they're confused about it. But God has positioned you not there to smack them back into place, but to bring them to grace, and you're missing the opportunity. And so our words, what, what, what are the purposes? Are our words therapy for ourselves? Are they beneficial to building someone else up? You know, worship is described as loving God and loving our neighbor, and the two are intimately connected, and we have to understand that the way that we live our life has to be moving towards both of those things. We have to keep a tight rein on our words. And I want to tell you, as I say this, this once again isn't a fix-it-all-at-once moment. But one of the first things to spiritual growth is recognition of a need to change. And if you can move yourself just into that category of, I recognize I need to begin to, to exercise some control over the words that I say. And, and, you know, Ephesians 29 says, you know, don't let any unwholesome words coming out of your mouth, but only that which is good for the building of, of others according to the needs that it may benefit those who listen. I get the, you know, unwholesome words. Like, I'm not too freaked out about that. Like, you know, you know about that. The thing that I really want to push on you about is, are your words building someone? Like, literally, are your words building into someone else? I know that you can get the unwholesome ones under control pretty easily whenever you decide that that's something that God wants you to do. But the thing that I know the church needs to do, the thing that I know your relationship needs, that your family members need, are words that build others up. Are we using our words in that way? Because if we're not, we're missing an opportunity. And this is kind of the, the, the second crime that, that I see in this, is that I, I think churches across the nation, that individuals across the nation are committing what I'd refer to as opportunity arson. It's like God gives us this opportunity and we just burn it to the ground. Well, you, you, you don't understand, you know, trying to talk with a, a, a Democrat or trying to talk with a Republican, let me tell you, if the Democrats or the Republicans are half as bad as a lot of people think they are, then you would agree with me that the only hope for them is to be radically changed by Jesus so that they can be socially and politically acceptable. Amen. All right? But if that is their only hope, based on the way that you've talked to them, would they come sit with you at church? Which one's first in our heart? Our political affiliation or our allegiance to our Savior? I mean, a couple, 
a couple months, maybe it was a year back, we, there's a video going around when Chick-fil-A was in hot water about some of their stance on social issues, and a person went through the drive-thru and ordered a glass of water and was just basically like freaking out on the woman at the window. And the woman at the window, she works at Chick-fil-A, so she's just extravagantly blessed, and she was just calm. And she was loving. And this person obviously disagreed with her. But as this video got out there, the people who watched it, even the ones who disagreed with Chick-fil-A's stance, they were siding with her of saying, how could he act that way? And I want to tell you, it's possible to completely disagree with someone, but still show them love. We don't need to be the people who put someone in their place. We need to be the people who draw them towards this grace. That needs to be who we are. That needs to be our first heartbeat. But if we cling to other things as being more important than the movement of the gospel, I just feel like that breaks God's heart. And believe me, I'm an opinionated person. I love to argue. It's described as one of my love languages. I will sit, and if I know you well enough, if I don't argue with you, I don't like you yet. That's just the reality of it. If I know you, I will argue with you about some stuff because that's how I express my love. But I can't get what's nat I can't let what's natural to me get in the way of the movement of the gospel. This is one of the reasons why so many church doors appear to be just barricaded shut throughout America, because we've prioritized things above the gospel. And we can't be that person. We can't be that people who put other things in front of the the gospel. I'm not saying we can't talk about civil issues. I'm just saying we have to be civil while we talk about those issues. In our home, in our workplace, in our schools, we need to understand what is most important. And that's always the person that God has placed there. And, And the combination of these two things, of identity theft, of losing who we're supposed to be, just being hearers of the word, but not actually living it out in this opportunity arson, it leads to what I would describe as hope held hostage. Because if we say that person that God's positioned us towards desperately needs to see the gospel lived out in front of them, but we would rather express our own opinions about civil matters in a way that shuts the door for the gospel to move, then it's like we have this hope that is only found in Jesus Christ, and we're just gonna, we're gonna hold it here. We're not going to position ourselves to help it spread into the lives of other people in the way that the passage describes it. When, when our tongue just goes wild and we say whatever we want, whatever we feel, the end part of that passage was, and their religion is worthless. If you can bring the passage back up, it says, and their religion is worthless. Now, why is it worthless? It becomes ineffective. It's not doing what it's supposed to do. And, and this Man, this affects so many churches in some really deep ways because the fact is, if our relationship with God is right, it it is effective in so many ways. It provides what Scripture says is peace that surpasses understanding. Like That's one of the functions of of a healthy relationship with God is it provides peace that passes understanding. And it doesn't mean that we don't experience anxiety, but it means that we can cast it back down at his feet. That even in the midst of the storm, we're just anchored to that. That we can't be drawn away from it. That joy flows out of our life. It wells up an effective relationship with God. It has a joy that can't be stolen by the things of this world. That we have been given a purpose and a calling. That we have condemnation and guilt removed from us. 
The effectiveness of our relationship with God, it's transformative. People seek after counselors trying to find what the gospel provides. And all of those should be on display through our life. But because of fighting over things that don't really matter, it's like we've taken this hope and we've made it inaccessible to so many people. So many people in our workplace, so many people in our city. And I believe that one of the reasons why we see so many dying churches is when we've brought that hope down, when we haven't applied the things that we've learned, not only are those things peace, joy, patience, goodness, kindness, self-control, the fruits of the Spirit, not only are they not display for our city to see, they're not happening in our life. Because we... If we fall into the habit of hearing the word but not ever applying it, then we stop experiencing it. And then the church almost begins to say, you know what, I do this every week, but I don't know that it does anything. I don't know that it has anything to offer anyone else. And so there's this mindset that builds, ah, you know, maybe I would invite them, but I don't think they'd like it. I don't think it would be for them. I don't think it would help them. And they may not say that out loud, but man, that's the thing. That's the thing that creeps in to the church's heart. If they're not experiencing transformation at church, if they're not experiencing encouragement, if they're not experiencing community with other people at church, if the church is not being what it's supposed to be when it hears the word, then they slip into this thing of, it wouldn't matter to them, so I'm not going to invite them. And so the church slowly, literally begins to die out. No new members, 10 years, 20 years. And the church is slowly moving to the graveyard. And then they close the doors. Why? Why did that happen? Why would that happen? Well, I'd say, based on what I see throughout the course of Scripture, but especially in James, is that our, our relationship with God, our religion, becomes ineffective when we become just hearers of the word or not, and not doers. Because what I found, and this is a really short study so far, but in two years of Gulfside being a church here in the city, I found that when you go out and you show grace to people, when you help them, when you help feed children who need it, when you help buy Christmas presents, when you do events that, that are encouraging to your city, people can't help but come check it out. And as they come, they can't help but be drawn into a community of people who love each other and love God. It happens. When you, when you follow the instructions of Scripture, I believe the church grows. But this isn't something that just the whole church does. This is something that the individual does. I believe one person on fire for God can spark major change and major growth in a church. And I believe when that spreads to others, that's when, when we begin to see the kingdom of God do something powerful throughout a city. Each one of us ha has to choose to do this. And, and this is close to my heart because I was talking with um, a friend of mine that, that, I, that I love. And band, you guys can come on out. Um, I'm going to begin to wrap this up. I was talking with a friend of mine. I, I, I love him. I believe in his leadership. Um, I, I think he's a great guy, but the church that he's leading has been struggling. And he made this statement to me that it made me angry inside. Like, I, 
I, I, I don't know how else to describe it. I would describe it better uh, to make myself look better if there was a way, but I was just literally angry when he said it. And he said, maybe God just wants me to lead this church of 50 people. And that's just what I'm supposed to do and just take care of them. And, and inside of me, like, I, I, I interrupted him and I, I told him in no uncertain words, I'm like, you have something to offer your city. Your city needs more than that from you. You can't just be internally focused on the people you have because there are marriages that are breaking apart just across the street from your church. There are families that are going through things alone that needs your hand in it. There are kids at school who who don't have shoes that fit their feet and through that small token of love and grace, you're gonna draw them in, but you have to get active. You have to do something. You have to stir your people up to do something, and if they don't, you need to do it yourself until they get dragged there. But there is no way that God wants the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ that provides joy and hope and love, that he wants it to just stay within those people within your walls. There's too many people in your city for that. And for a church to start believing that is a terrible place to be. So once again, man, this message, it's for me today to clarify, and I want you to hear what's going on through, through, through my head right now as, as your pastor. We as a church, we have an individual responsibility to take the step that God's asking us to take, because there's a lot on the line. There's a lot on the line for this city right now. There are families that I believe we'll see them, and we'll see God do great things in their family, and their family's going to move and go somewhere else, and we will have had them for a season, but that season matters, and I don't want to miss that time because we got wrapped up in things that don't matter. But in this season, in this next few months, I believe that God is going to do some things in our hearts. I believe he's going to do some great things for our people, and I believe he's going to do some great things for people who are not yet here. And I want to be completely clear that this church exists for the people who aren't here yet. I want to see you mature. I want to see you deep in your faith. I want to see you take those steps. I want to see the, the dreams that God has planted in your heart come true, but it never stops with us. We don't reach a point where we say, okay, we're financially we're stable, so we can stop now. No, no, no. There's a family out there that needs the gospel. And within your heart, within your faith, you need to continue to say yes to whatever God asks. Because when we get to the point where we hear the word, but we don't respond to it, we begin to deceive ourselves. And when a church begins to deceive themselves, that church begins to die. And when that church dies, opportunities are missed in the city. I don't want us to ever miss an opportunity. Go after it with all our heart, all our strength. God has a purpose for you in this city. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you speak to us, that you challenge us, that, that in the midst of a message, in the midst of reading scripture on our own, that the Holy Spirit of God works in our heart to draw us closer. Give us the courage to say yes, whatever the question is that comes from you. Give us the courage to say the words. Give us the courage to serve. Give us the courage to be generous. Whatever it is that you're calling us to do, give us the courage to step into that moment so that we know our faith is more than just listening, but our faith is following you, Jesus.